What's up, Chapel family? Everybody's doing good this morning? Yeah, it's a little bit warmer in here than it is out there. It is not raining, uh, and, you know, it's been a little bit chaotic the last few weeks, but it is a good to see you in the house of God. We have a lot of good stuff going on. As we get ready for that, you can turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And some of those things, just the piggyback, prayer and fasting begins tomorrow morning. It's going to be online only, just kind of give COVID a chance to just slow down and take a break a little bit and give our staff a chance to kind of heal. We had some of our staff uh, quarantined this week as well. But what is prayer and fasting? Well, prayer is just spending time with God. Fasting is letting go of something that you fleshly desire or desire with your, your body or your mind or your soul that's not of God, and so you're going to let go of that. So for some of you, that could be food. Some of you, that could be a Wesleyan fast where you don't eat during sunlight hours. For some of you, that may be fasting social media. Maybe it's technology. But just setting something aside so you can spend more time with Jesus. And I have tons of testimonies about the power of uh, fasting in my life. But I've seen people get healed through fasting. It lets the body reset itself back to the way God created it to be. I've seen uh, struggles and strongholds and addiction and temptations broken through fasting because you're training your body to say yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. Lots of good things with that. So this week is, is kind of that. Then the Awakening Conference is next Sunday night. It's going to be a powerful three days uh, with De Havilland Ford, Lee Cummings, and Donnie McClurkin. Uh, we have lots of our friends in the community, other pastors that are going to be here with us. So make sure you register for that. And Sunday night at the first session, there's an after party. We're going to have the courtyard built out front with Smashed, which is a hamburger food truck and some other great things. So make sure you come hungry after you fasted all week. And then Masterclass, new series. So we'll finish this series next Sunday. We start a new series on February 6th called Masterclass. We're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount because many people know what Jesus said, but they don't know the ways of Jesus. So we're going to relearn the ways of Jesus, walk through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to start that off with my dear friend and mentor, friend of chapel, Dr. R.T. Kendall, to start that off right. So it is a great time to be at chapel. And Luke chapter 10 is a, a great, great Scripture, there's been a primary scripture for me in just my evangelism pursuits. And some of y'all, most of y'all know who Billy Graham is. If you know who Billy Graham is, raise your hand. So everybody over the age of 30, everybody under the age of 30 is like, is he like a social media guy or something? No, no, no. He is the most profound evangelist ever in the world. But many people don't know who Edward Kimball is. So Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher way back in 1854. And there was one kid, a high school kid in his class, who he could not stand. This kid didn't pay attention to anything that he was teaching, didn't pay attention to anything he was saying, but Kimball had this amazing desire for this kid. So one day, instead of him coming to Sunday school, Kimball went to this man's or this young guy's place of business, which is a shoe store. And when he went there, Kimball began to share the gospel outside the confines of the church with this kid who'd been in this Sunday school class for a couple years, had not responded, shared it with him at his workplace, and basically just told him, how much God loved him, and how much he wanted him to love God. At that point, that young man said yes to Jesus, and then went to Bible college. That man was D.L. Moody, one of the great evangelist pastors, sort of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, the Moody Bible Church in Chicago. Amazing evangelist. Over 100 million people got saved through his ministry. But one of the people that got saved through his ministry of D.L. Moody was F.B. Meyer, who was in England. F.B. Meyer became a great evangelist in Europe. And he reached somebody called Chapman. Wilbur Chapman was a young man who got saved at F.B. Meyer Campus Crusade. He began to work for D.L. Moody. And while he worked for D.L. Moody, he hired a man named Billy Sunday. 
People know Billy Graham. Billy Sunday was a former baseball player, wanted to reach the college campus. He hired a man named Mordecai Ham, trained him to be an evangelist. Mordecai Ham went to Charlotte, North Carolina, held an amazing crusade, and there was a young man named Billy Graham sitting there on the sawdust and heard the message of the gospel preached because Mordecai Ham was sent by Billy Sunday, who was led to Jesus by Wilbur Chapman, who heard F.B. Meyer preach, and F.B. Meyer was saved through the ministry of D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody traced all the way back to Edward Kilman. So the question would be, most of us in this room can trace our lineage of spirituality back to somebody else. Mine was Bob Schindler, a young, uh, a young missionary evangelist at a Baptist church in my hometown who wanted to share the gospel with my dad and me. My dad at the time was a far out, on drugs, Everything you could think of, it was going against the grain. He shared the gospel with him and me when I was six years old. And so for you, I need you to know that you are here because somebody else got uncomfortable enough to cross the room or get out of the church and share the gospel with somebody that shared the gospel with you. You didn't know that you are not here because you're on effort. You're here because somebody else was obedient to the mission and call of God that brought you into the family of God. And you can never underestimate the power of one person getting saved. I heard one person say, you can count the number of apples on a tree, but you can't count the number of apples in a seed. And when you share the gospel, it is a seed sown, and you have no idea how many people that seed is going to Reach. I'm not talking about mass evangelism. I'm talking about in your personal life. When you sow the seeds of the gospel, you cannot count the impact it's going to have on somebody else. And so it says this in Luke chapter 10. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. So he, he sent them two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. Everybody say plentiful. There ain't a harvest problem, but the laborers are few. So it's a supply chain problem. We got plenty of stuff back in China, but we just ain't got anybody to ship it for us. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But then he says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you. So he says, pray for people to go, but you go too. So a lot of times we say, well, we're going to pray, you know, God, send somebody along their way. God, you know, bring people across their path. He said, pray for them, but also go do something. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Meaning, don't go everywhere. Just go to this one certain spot. For whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick. Everybody say, heal the sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. It's amazing scripture because what is happening is this. When you read Luke chapter 9, which is a long chapter, the very last little section of Scripture in Luke chapter 9, he's talking to the disciples, these 72, about what it means to follow Jesus. 
Many of them are fighting over the first seat. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? What about this? We'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. We got your back. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 just slow down. He's like, because even foxes have places to stay, but I, I have no place to stay. He says, you say you want to follow me, but if you look back, you're not worthy of following me. You say you want to follow me, but you say you've got to go to your mom or daddy's funeral first. And I say to you, if you have to do that, then you're not worthy of following. So it's all about following, following, following. And Jesus is trying to show them the cost of following. But then he gets into Luke chapter 10. It goes from following to sending. Follow me, and I'm sending you. See, in church world today, we think these are two different things. Following Jesus is for, you know, pastors and preachers and, and maybe some leaders. And sending is for missionaries and evangelists. And we're just the spectators. We'll provide some money to make sure it happens. Jesus connected discipleship and evangelism as the same thing. That if you're actually following Jesus, you're being sent out by Jesus. The problem is Christianity in our culture, in our region, in our context, has lost the rhythm of following Jesus. We've lost the rhythm of coming to Jesus and being sent by Jesus. Coming to Jesus and being sent by Jesus. And the reason why... It's because we've got so caught up in consumer-based Christianity where there's a consumer and there's a producer. We pay people to do the evangelism. We pay missionaries to go spread the gospel. We pay pe- And so then what happens is we try to create this context. We've lost the rhythm. And when you lose the rhythm, you no longer have the heartbeat of Jesus. Because the rhythm of sending and coming and sending and coming and evangelism, discipleship, is not a missional strategy. It's the heartbeat of the Father. As his heart beats out, it sends us out. But his heart beats in, it pulls us back in. It's his rhythm of life. Even Philemon, uh, verse 6, there's only one chapter in Philemon. Philemon, verse 6, says this, as you share the gospel, you grow. Meaning, you cannot grow as a follower of Jesus unless you're actively participating in evangelism and sharing the gospel. The reason American Christianity is so weak is because we only have one part of the heartbeat. When you get the other part, you just start to grow in your inner man and your faith. And this is the reason, I think, that we don't participate in the rhythm of God. Is, I know Ben Flippo was just at Disney World. I've been to Disney World with Toy and her family and her kids, which Disney World is kind of like purgatory to me. Like you're just praying for somebody to get you out of there. Some people love Disney World. But if you were, to, you know, I know not every parent's experienced this, but I have lost a child once or twice or three or four or five times. We forgot them. We say, we, I have forgotten kids before at church. They set the alarm off, forgotten them at school. I forgot RJ this week at basketball practice. Like, I, for, like I forget kids, and I lose them. Right? So it's one thing to lose your kids somewhere they don't want to be. If you lose them on the side of the road, that's a big deal. If you lose them at Walmart, that's a big deal. But if you lost your kid at Disney World, it may not be that big of a deal. They may not even realize they're lost for a while because there's so many other things to distract them that mom and daddy aren't there. There's so many rides, there's so many games, there's so many, much entertainment, there's so much food, there's so, so many things that are there that they wouldn't realize mom or daddy weren't there until they realize they don't have money to pay for something maybe. Or they fall down and get hurt, they need mom and daddy to help them. And what happens is they're lost but they don't realize they're lost because the environment they're in is so distracting 
they don't realize they're not connected to mommy or daddy anymore. But they're just as lost at Disney World as they would be in prison. Because the problem isn't where you're at. The problem is the separation from mommy and daddy. And when you realize that every single person we see, no matter how good their life seems, they're either connected to the Father or separated from the Father, that's what motivates Christianity to be an evangelistic mindset. Not the problem. See, we are easy where if somebody goes through an addiction, well, they need Jesus. Or somebody's in jail, well, they need Jesus. Or somebody's losing their marriage, then they need Jesus. But the person who has everything they could wish for, who's separated from the Father, needs Jesus just as bad as the addict does. And we've been brought up this consumer-based Christianity that since we feel like everybody has what they need, they may not need Jesus. So what we do as a church, instead of going out and reaching people, we just create a better Disney world inside the church and hope they like this Disney world better than that Disney world. And Jesus said, you got to go because, look, there is a lot of harvest left, but I don't have enough labors. He said, you need to get the heartbeat that you have to go, you have to go, you have to go. But then there's this coming back. There's coming back. And this is the heartbeat of Christianity since the day of Pentecost. Christianity has not been a spectator pew religion. It's been a missional, military going after that which God has lost. And all of us are a byproduct of that beautiful, amazing mission from the heart of the Father to reach all his kids that are lost. So the question would be to you, who is your one? Who is your one? Jesus in this scripture tells them, he said, listen, look for a person of peace. Find a person, one person, he says, don't go house to house. Don't run from place to place, but find one person who welcomes you, and that person is where you pour your ministry and your life into. See, I believe there's three types of people, and this may be crude for some of y'all, but there's three types of evangelism. Machine gun evangelism, cap gun evangelism, and rifle evangelism. Most of us don't participate in, in machine gun evangelism anymore. You probably know these people. It's the guy with the bullhorn on the side of the street telling everybody you're going to hell. Machine gun evangelism tries to convince people that God is not working on yet, that they need God. If somebody's heart is hard to the spirit of God, they're going to be hard to the word of God or the gospel of God. And what happens with a machine gun, it causes collateral damage. So you may hit your target, but you're going to hit a whole lot of other people, and there'll be collateral damage because of your evangelism. Now, cap gun evangelism is where you're full of blanks. You don't do anything. You may talk about it at church, but nothing happens when you leave. You, you may pull the trigger, but it's just pulling the trigger. God, I hope you save them. God, I hope, God they need Jesus. You, you're like what he said. I'm praying earnestly for the laborers, and Jesus said, no, no, you need to go. Rifle-based evangelism is when you set something in your target, you set it precisely on them, and you hit what you're shooting for. And Jesus in Scripture said, don't go house to house. Don't go trying to save your entire neighborhood. Don't go trying to reach everybody in the city. Find the person I've set before you. Set your sights on them. Set your target on them. And spread the gospel in and through 
them. That's what we call a person of peace. A person of peace. And all that is is this. A person of peace is simply somebody God has prepared ahead of time to hear the message of the gospel through you. It's somebody that God is working on ahead of time because the Spirit of God has to work before you work. And so the Spirit of God is working on them, working in their life. Something's going on in their life. Somebody's been praying for them, a grandmother, a grandfather, a mom or dad, praying, God, send out labors. Send out labors. And God puts them in your path. He's preparing their heart. He's softening their heart. And he's putting them across your path so that you can participate in the mission of reaching his lost sons and daughters. See, the difference is you can waste a whole lot of your energy and time on people God is not working on. But it'd be much better to partner with God in ministering to those he's already working on. It's much more fruitful. It's much more fulfilling. It's much more efficient. And so this person of peace, Jesus says, go. When you find somebody who welcomes you in, stay there until you're done ministering to them, don't go house to house. And so what he's saying is, I've got some people in your path. I've got some people at your job. I've got some people at your school. I've got some people in your neighborhood. I've got some people that I'm working on. And as you cross their paths, here's how you'll recognize them. They'll be a person of peace. And when you recognize them, stay there and minister to them until my word goes forth. Because this is how you'll recognize them. Three marks of a person of peace. One, they welcome you. There's a whole lot of people. I've shared the gospel that I joked with somebody the other day that I used to stop at the gas station, the shell across from the mall. I stopped and get gas, and then I would get my Zinger cakes and my Coca-Cola, which is why I'm now doing keto, because I've drank so many Cokes and Zinger cakes that it started catching up with me when I turned 40. So I stopped at the shell station. I walk in one day, and there's a lady that she has a brace in her arm. She's like holding her, holding her arm funny. You know how people when they want attention for an injury, like they're trying to act like they don't want attention, but it's kind of like, oh, and they're like, oh, what? She was like one of those. So I said, like, the Spirit of God just provoked me to pray for her. I said, hey, like, what's wrong with your arm? And she said, oh, you know, nothing. I said, no, 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 what's wrong with it? She's like, no, I heard it. It just hadn't gotten better. I don't have an insurance to go to the doctor. And I was like, this is my moment. I'm the pastor. I'm the preacher. I'm the, got the prayer of faith. This is my moment. I said, can I pray for you? She says, I'd rather you not. I was like, what? Like, you're a southerner. You're supposed to, like, at least appease me in some form or another. Like, the Spirit of God wasn't working on her. And so I can't minister to somebody that the Holy Spirit's not ministering to. Because all I am is a yielding vessel of God to participate with God for what God wants to accomplish. And so you'll notice a person of peace because they welcome you. They'll be nice to you. They invite you in. They welcome you. Maybe somebody at work who's more nice to you than the other people. It's never going to be the person who hates Christianity and hates religion. There's certain ministry callings for those people, but not for you. Like you're not going to convince somebody to soften their heart. They can only be softened by the Spirit of God. They will welcome you in two. They'll receive you. They'll listen to what you have to say. 
They'll receive you into their life. You'll become part of their life. This whole thing is very relational. They'll invite you in. They'll receive you. But then three, they're open to what you have to say. They're not going to be arguing with you and debating with you. They may have questions. They may have some thoughts. They may have some pain. They may have some trauma. But they're open to what you have to say. And so these people of peace are right in front of your path. Some of them may be temporary relationships that God has placed in your life. Some of them may be long-term. It may be a family member God has placed in your life that he's working on. He's assigned you to them. They are your person of peace. And as you start to realize that nothing in life happens by accident, there is no such thing as a coincidence under the providence of God. Everything happens according to his will, or it's evil that he'll turn into good through his will. Every relationship you have is either placed there by the enemy or placed there by God. And when you start realizing that, you're not going anywhere by accident. You go to your job on mission. You go to your neighborhood on mission. God helped you buy the house that you have where you bought it because he has a mission for you in that neighborhood. You don't teach at a certain school by accident. You are there because God planned before the whole creation of the universe for you to be at that school to reach people of peace to bring them back home to his father. Like nothing happens by accident. And so there's people of peace. But how Jesus hits it, he says, listen, the harvest is plentiful, but pray. So you need to realize you have to pray and go. In church where we are, I love prayer. We have five days of prayer coming up. We are notorious notorious for praying about stuff that God has already given us the responsibility and the power to do on our own. What that means is you don't have to ask yourself if you should share the gospel with somebody. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Like that's a command. Like you don't have to pray about it. You don't have to pray about being loving to people. You don't have to pray about loving your enemies. There's things that you already know what God's will is. But we are terrible about praying ourselves out of God's will and convincing ourselves out of it. The scripture would be one of those easy, you know, the harvest is plentiful, where the labors are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out labors. Okay, I'm going to pray. But immediately he sends them out. So that tells me is you need to pray about it and do something about it. Well, I've got, I've got a lost grandson, and you know, I'm just praying somebody will come across. Okay, here, here's a principle I've learned, that God will do for you what you do for another. So there's people in your life, maybe it's a grandson, a, a grandkid is in a bad situation with their family, their fam- mom and dad aren't serving God, they're not in church. Maybe if you get back there in chapel, kids, and you do for somebody else's grandkid what you want somebody to do for yours, maybe you'll see the windows of heaven open up into your family's life. The principle is this. Pray about it and do something about it. Pray about it and do something about it. Pray about it and do something about it. Why is that important? Because salvation is the most powerful miracle in all Scripture. I used to joke, somebody, man, I just wish we'd see more miracles. And I've seen people get out of wheelchairs. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen some really cool stuff. You know what happens when somebody gets out of a wheelchair? They're still going to die physically at some point. But when somebody gets saved, they will never die again. 
The only thing God can touch, God can touch a human body, God can touch a human mind, God can do a lot of things. The only thing he cannot touch is the human free will. And so when someone gets saved, they're setting aside their free will and submitting it to the sovereignty and providence of God. That is a miracle. When somebody goes from death to life spiritually. And what happens is, it's not a matter of convincing somebody. John 6, says, no one can come to the Father unless they're drawn by the Spirit. So this is what happens when you share the gospel. God the Father has paid the price through God the Son. He sent out God the Spirit to begin softening the hearts of people and using your hands, your feet, and your mouth to communicate the message of Jesus to somebody else. So you have human interaction and human interaction, and the Spirit of God is connecting those two together to create a miracle in the flesh. It is a supernatural work of God where God uses the church as his body to reach those who aren't his body to become part of his body. It is a miracle. It happens through praying God soften their heart. God softened the heart. There's a young man I've known for years. He is way out in the world. If I showed you a picture, tattoos everywhere, hanging out with celebrities, like way out. And he messaged me just two, three weeks ago. I've been praying for this young man for years. He is so caught up in the Disneyland of the world that he's forgotten about Jesus, forgotten about the calling upon his life. He looks like he has success galore, but yet something in the middle of the night triggered him to DM a 40-year-old, balding, getting fat pastor. And what it was was years and years of praying, God, soften his heart. God, draw him home. God, speak into his life. God, surround him with people. And I've been working him. I've been working. See, the Spirit of God softens a heart so there's enough soft soil for the seed of the gospel to go into so that somebody else may water that seed so that way it takes root and at some point it'll break through the surface and create a flower for the whole world to see. Just because you don't see the flower doesn't mean God isn't working. God is in the seed sowing business, he's in the watering business, he's in the rooting business, he's in the weeding business, he's in the sunlight business, he's in the photosynthesis, he's in the whole process. And we get to play a small part in some part of the process. But I do know our part is praying and going. Praying and going. But he tells them, it's interesting, go house to house. He doesn't tell them to go from church to church. So we think evangelism is somebody coming up here preaching a salvation message and people getting saved. That's a part of it. That's the office of evangelist. But the work of evangelism is for the church. He says, don't go everywhere. Go house to house. Sit at their table. Eat their food. Drink their sweet tea. Get in their refrigerator. Eat up everything you can eat up is basically what he says. What he's saying is, in my kingdom... We win through relationships. In my kingdom, we build the kingdom over a table, over conversation. What that means is for us as people, your person of peace is somebody you should be building a relationship with. Why John Maxwell said people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. One of the great detriments, I believe, of Christianity was the soul-winning movement. It did a great good... Uh, the, the Full Gospel Business Fellowship, great movement. Evangelism Explosion, great movement. There's been great evangelism movements. But when we got into soul-winning language, 
We stopped looking at people as people and lost sons of God and started looking at them as trophies in our trophy case. And the world recognized it. I recognized when I was not serving God, people would try to win. Oh, you got to repent. You got to do this. They were pushing me, but they didn't love me. They never took the time to get to know Bobby. They just wanted Bobby as a jewel in their crown when they got to heaven. Jesus here, he had said real hard. He said, don't, don't go house to house trying to get trophies. Go to one house. Invest your life in that house. Pour your love into that house. Share the gospel in that house. Declare my kingdom in that house. It's a relational. The gospel spreads from life to life, friend to friend, relationship to relationship. It's a principle. And the more we get caught up in the social media world, the more we lose that interaction of table to table. That's why community groups are such a big deal that are about to launch. That's how we invite people to the table so we can share the gospel with them. We can share life with them. We can communicate. Discipleship's not just what happens after you get saved. It happens before you get saved. And here's how you can build some friends. Some of y'all need this at work. Six principles to build a relationship or make people like you is what the book said. Principle one, become genuinely interested in other people. Not interested in what you can get from them, but interested in them. Right. What's their story? Right. Do you realize one of, the, one of the things that drives me crazy is all the things we see in political world that we cast issues on and cast blame on is really a story behind that. But we lump all the stories into one platform. Like when we talk about homosexuality, you know, we, it's easy to lump that into a political platform. But do you realize there is a story in every single person? And I think the number 75 to 80% of people who practice homosexuality experience sexual abuse and trauma as a child. So instead of making it a, a platform politically, it's a story to discover in other people to help get them to the king who's trying to save them. Number two, just smile. No one likes an angry Christian. When your preacher's preaching, and they're like, but God loves you. Really? Wow. Principle three, remember that person's name. Is that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language? What it means is you care enough about them to remember them. Do you realize every time God saved somebody and spoke from heaven, he mentioned their name? Because the name, it, it shows there's an intimacy, there's a care there. When you remember people's names, it shows that you care enough about them to know who they are. Four, be a good listener. Five, talk in terms of other people's interests. Get to know what common ground you have. Their kids, their family, their dreams, their desires. That scared the daylights out of me. Principle six, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. That means serve them. Serve them. Make them feel like God wants them through you. You have to build the relationship, but then you also, he says, go and heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. You have to share the gospel with your life, love, and words. Heal the sick, preach the kingdom. Heal the sick, preach the kingdom. Evangelism has never been just about a message. It's been about the power along with the message. Whether that's power for healing, whether that's power for breaking the yoke, whether that's power for breaking addiction, whether that's power breaking brokenness, there's always power attached to the gospel because the gospel is not just a message, it's the power unto salvation. You got to share the gospel with your life, your love, and words because evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. Years ago, Francis Assisi 
People used to say, this quote was his quote. We found out he never said it. But it said, go in all the world and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And if necessary, use words. The problem with that is he never said that. Somebody made it up and thought it'll go much further if they think Francis of Assisi did it. Second of all, you can't preach the gospel without words. It is literally a message. It is a story. It is a something. The word evangelism literally means to declare and announce something. Yes, you can love people. Yes, you can share your life with people. But just because you can love somebody straight to hell. It takes love, the power of love, but also the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. See, this whole servant-based evangelism has some good things, but if you serve people and you serve people and you serve people, but you never tell them why you're serving them, it detriments the move of the gospel. The gospel is a message that must be declared, proclaimed, and announced. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am unashamed, but it looks like the church is ashamed of anything that has to do with the gospel. We'll love people. We'll serve people. But when we tell them this, hey, I love you and I serve you only because God first loved me. That was broken. You would not have liked me 25 years ago. I was caught up in my sin. I was caught up in adultery and lust and fornication and drugs. and Whatever your story, I was caught up in all this. But Jesus loved me enough that he met me in a place of brokenness. He delivered me, and I confessed my sins to him. I laid myself down. I bowed myself to this King of kings and Lord of lords. I received salvation. I'm a new creation in Christ because of him. See, we're ashamed of that, but that's where the power is. See, and I think the reason we're ashamed of it is the gospel is offensive to those who have not yet received it. In our day and age of, well, that's offensive to me. So the gospel says, you're not good enough on your own. You need Jesus to be the good for you. It's counterintuitive to a whole world that tells everybody they're good enough just the way they are. And I'm sorry to tell you, none of us are good enough just the way we are. We have to be born again. And we're born again from the message being proclaimed and the message being received, it creates new life in us to walk out. See, it's a greater story than just your individual story. The story's not just about you messing up and sinning and you want to feel better about yourself. It's the story of the kingdom is what he said. The story of the king he said, heal the sick and proclaim the what? Kingdom. The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is this great quote. I want to read it to you. It says this, the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that in and through the life death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring his kingdom and making all things new. And he is inviting us into it. See, that's the story of the gospel, is that the world is broken. God has a plan. He created it perfectly. We broke it. He has a plan. He's going to restore new all things. And he's inviting anybody who wants to be part of this new plan to join him, invite them in. See, it's not just about you, it's about God's big plan. So the four stories, is this creation. That God created the heavens and earth, and earth perfectly. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. There was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no injury, there was no hatred, there was no jealousy, no bitterness. Everything was perfect. Which tells us four philosophical questions. Origin, where did I come from? 
every person. They may not be a child of God yet, but they were all created by God. Where did you come from? You came from God himself. Tell them about God's plan and peace for their life. That if they're going through brokenness, that's not God's plan for you. Cancer is not God's plan for you. Addiction is not God's plan for you. Sickness is not God's plan for you. Divorce is not God's plan for you. All the addiction, all this, it's not God. God created earth to be perfectly healthy and whole. Perfect harmony, perfect unity. But then the fall happened. We decided through Adam and Eve to just do what we wanted to do. We elevated the power of choice over the power of right and wrong, which is what we're doing today. You know, we can, and this is not a political statement, but this, you can take it however you want to. I don't know anybody who is pro-choice that actually believes abortion is right. I've yet to find somebody say, I just think it's absolutely right. Da, da, da. No, they all ignore the morality of it, and they all elevate the power of choice. And everything that's happening in culture around us, morality has to be defined by somebody. And we have an internal, universal lawgiver who's placed that in our hearts that there is a right and wrong. Now, you may elevate other things above it. You may elevate choice above it, but there's still a right and wrong, and none of us on our own can get there on our own. We have to share that right and wrong is what separated us. It's what got us lost at Disney World. Yeah, you may be entertained, but you're still missing your father. You're still missing that intimacy, and it's because of the fall and because of our choices to do what we want to do. Then redemption. Talk about God's remedy, the cross, that, yeah, you may have broken, you may have fallen, you may have sinned, but Jesus made a way where you couldn't make your own way. He paid the price for your penalty, your consequences, through his blood upon the cross where you failed, grace made up the difference. And let them know that just because you've fallen doesn't mean you have to stay there. God picks you up and gets you on solid ground. But four, it's not complete, restoration. That God is restoring everything. The whole story of Revelation is not about the mark of the beast. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the seven seals or the seven bowls. That's just a Christian entertainment. The whole point of the book is this. Jesus is king over the entire universe, and he is coming back to set up his throne upon earth, and it'll be a new heaven and a new earth and a new kingdom that shall never fail. It'll be just like it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. He's restoring. There will be no sickness. There will be no COVID. There will be no evil. There will be no violence. Why? The whole first part of Revelation is he's destroying all that junk. He destroys violence. He destroys evil kingdoms. He destroys sin. He destroys it all so that way he can restore all things back the way he wants it to be. And he's inviting us to join him in this new kingdom. And the only way to get in this kingdom, says Jesus is the door, he's the way, the truth, and life. The only way to enter in this new kingdom that he's building, he's restoring, is through the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel we're preaching. We're not preaching a gospel of you fail, you know, God loves you, he'll make it up for you, he'll, he'll give you your best life now. No, it's, he, is re, he has a huge story going on. And within that huge story, there's lots of individual stories, and he's inviting us this big meta-narrative to participate with them. And here's the goal. In Luke chapter 15, he gives us three persons of peace. Luke chapter 15, if you don't know, is the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. If you notice, they're each one. One coin, one sheep, 
one son. And so I believe this. God is sending all of us into one of these three areas to find a person of peace. All three areas. You think about the lost coin was in the room. The lost sheep was out somewhere out in the world, but the lost son was part of the family. And so here's my encouragement to you, that I'm challenging you this year to identify one person of peace to pray for and share the gospel with. And when they receive Jesus, I'll let you come up here and baptize them yourself. I'll let you disciple them. I'll resource you. We'll talk about it all year. I don't want the church to receive glory. I want Jesus to receive glory. And so I'm challenging you. And here's those three areas. One, the lost coin. When the woman lost the coin, the coin was still in the room. It was still in her house. Like, you may not know this, but in this room right now, there's all types of lost coins. They're extremely valuable to you, to their family, to God. But they may be lost as all get out. And somebody has to get down on the floor and start looking. So the principle we just walk across the room. Be an evangelist in the house of God. Find somebody who's sitting alone and sit with them. Begin to pray for them weekly, develop a relationship with them, and then begin to share the gospel with them. It's the principle. Man, when I was way, way far from God, way far from God, I went to church one time when I was in Baltimore. Went to church, I remember it was a Sunday night. I didn't really have church clothes. I was a straight thugged out. Like all my clothes were like Sean John and all the, the stuff Toya likes. And, um, I got to wear like size 42 to make them baggy enough, like double X shirt. Like, so I remember I was wanting to go to church because I just needed like some stability in my life. I remember I had to go to get these, like a button down. Like I, I knew, the, knew the routine. And I get it and I walk into this huge church, probably the size of the chapel. Walk in and not a single person said a word to me. I walked in by myself, I sat by myself, and I left my, by myself, and I went home without Jesus by myself. Because no one was willing to go out of their comfort zone to just walk across the room. Especially in charismatic Pentecostal circles. We get so caught up in our worship, we lose sight of the mission. We get so caught up in what we're called to do, what we're feeling, we're experiencing, that we miss. There's lost coins all around us. But the second area was the prodigal. Prodigal, that was a a son of the family. Maybe there's already somebody in your family, maybe in your network at school, maybe somebody you already have somewhat of a relationship with. And maybe God is calling them to be your person of peace. The principle would be to come and see. It's an invitation. Come with me and see. And I'm not just talking about coming to church, even though I think that's part of it. I, I think we've equated most evangelism to coming to church. You can invite them to church, but I'd rather you invite them into your life. They will see a much more authentic gospel presentation at your dinner table than they will probably this church. At church, they'll have a thousand reasons why not to believe me, but when they're sitting with you face to face and you've invited them into your life, there is very little obstacle between what God wants to do in them and through them. But the third one is the lost sheep. It was out there. That's the go and tell. For some of you, maybe that is God has placed some people in your path. You may cross them on the street. You may pass them at work. That God has pointed you towards them. The principle is not come and see. The principle is go and tell. 
Go and tell them all the things God has done for you. Go and tell them your story. Don't leave nothing back. Tell them, here's who I was, here's how God met me, and here's who I am now. Nobody can argue with your testimony. Like, just walk across the room and share it with somebody here. Somebody in your family, invite them in, and somebody else go and tell. That is the principle. I promise you, as you engage in the sending of Jesus, you'll grow much closer to Jesus. Just illustrate it. I met a, a, a man, I think, three or four weeks ago. And, and people would ask me, have you met Larry White yet? Have you met Larry White yet? Have you met Larry White yet? I was like, no, but I want to meet Larry White. Like, everybody's talking about him. I'm like, I want to meet this dude. I finally meet him. Amazing older gentleman, has an amazing story of just being used by God and, and some incredible churches in America. But everyone in this room, everyone in this room is connected to Larry White. Everyone. Everyone in this room is connected to Larry White, myself included. Larry White, as a young man, picked up Mike Lee, which is Joan Lee's wife, which is Jessica's dad, Larissa's dad, Erica's dad, Olivia's grandfather, picked him up as he was hitchhiking on the side of the road, picked him up, led him to Jesus, spent time with him. Mike then, along with Pastor Doc Shell, they started this church. He'd come off and on, Larry, as he was traveling in and out. This church, and this church has grown to reach you, the community, kids, grandkids, the Dream Center, Haiti, Guatemala, all of this because one man picked up a hitchhiker and shared the gospel with him. That is the power of multiplication. Because you can count the number of apples on the tree, but you cannot count the number of apples in the seed. That is how God works to build his kingdom. He does not build it through political platforms. He does not build it through sanctuary platforms. He builds it from life to life with people who are obedient to the sending and following of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for just the blessings you've given us. And we thank you that the heart of you pumps, pumps, it pumps life in sending, it pumps life in bringing, the coming and going of the hearts of your people back to you. And Father, I pray right now, all of this room, just as I pray this morning, Father, you're giving pictures of people that are people of peace. You're giving impressions of names, you're giving addresses in their neighborhood. Father, you're showing them cubicles at work. You're showing them people at work. You're showing them a desk at school. Father, for teachers, you're showing them certain students that you're assigning to them. Father, for employers, you're showing them certain employees that you've marked for them to lead and minister to. But Father, also, we thank you that you are inviting us into this big, huge meta-narrative, that our world is broken. All of us can admit to that our world is completely broken. But you are creating and establishing a new heavens and a new earth. Father, through your son, Jesus, you're inviting us in. And so, Father, we say yes to Jesus this morning. Yes to the door, the narrow way, the way and the truth and the life. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that has cleansed us enough to be citizens, not of earth, but of the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, right now, everyone with their eyes closed and their heads bowed, he said, you know what? I don't feel like I'm part of that big story. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you said a prayer before, but you never actually started following Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. 
He said, what today, just the Holy Spirit has provoked my heart and is stirring me, and I just want to say yes. I want today to be a new day, start a new journey into that new kingdom. That you, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. That you, just slip your hand up real quick. That you, just slip your hand up real quick. Anybody else? See one. Father, in Jesus' name. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ, who in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our sin, still loved us enough to leave heaven to come to earth, to pay our debt, to pay our price, to give us new life and to make us citizens of heaven and children of you, our heavenly Father. Father, right now we thank you for salvation. We thank you for confession. We thank you for believing. We thank you for the gift of faith. And Father, above all, we thank you for the price you paid and the glory you received. We bless you in Jesus' name and all God's people said.